A really important message in my mind this morning. I know that's subjective, but we're in a series on Galatians, law, liberty, and life in Jesus, knowing how it all works. And here's the long, Corbin-esque title for this teaching. Quote, because I hear this all the time. As long as we all love each other and help make the world a better place, does it really matter what the church believes doctrinally about Jesus Christ? And sometimes the inference is even, you know what, it's doctrine that's dividing the church. If we weren't so picky about this belief and that belief, wouldn't it be better if we could all just do a group hug and show the world a united front, a, a, a universal church that really loves each other and isn't full of any kind of division and strife? And it's these stupid doctrines that get us all messed up. Jesus never wanted us to be fighting about this kind of stuff. Something like that. To, to which I say, in the Greek, buffalo biscuits. And I want to look at why. The text is Galatians 5, 7 to 12. Get a Bible. Stay with me. Galatians 5, 7 to 12. If you're at home, follow along. Paul speaks to these churches in Galatia with the Jewish false teachers that have come from Jerusalem saying, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but you also need to keep all the laws and regulations of the Old Covenant, circumcision, dietary laws, fellowship laws, all of those things, they're necessary too, okay? And this is bugging Paul. So Paul is writing now to these new Christians in the churches of Galatia, and here's what he says. You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. This isn't from Jesus. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord. You will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, if I'm still endorsing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, why am I still being persecuted? In other words, look at this. Paul is saying, the proof that I'm preaching Christ is, everybody's against me. There's proof, he says, that I'm preaching the gospel. Everybody hates me for it. So 11. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And Paul doesn't want it abolished. He wants the offense of the cross front and center. And then here's one that you probably don't have on your fridge as a life verse. 12. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated, emasculated is what he's talking about. How are we going to come to terms with the full weight of Paul's words in our text? I want to start by saying that the way we respond to these verses reveals the spiritual health of a local church. As much as our worship 
gifts of the Spirit, hours spent in prayer, miracles manifested, the number of people saved or reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our response to these words reveals the spiritual health of any church family. This is a text where Paul reveals the fullness of his heart as he continues to address the issue of the false teaching, the false doctrine that's creeping into these churches. I mean, he's pressed all sorts of theological arguments in the last three chapters. We've looked at a lot of them. But, but you get the impression that he's worried these new Christians might not feel the importance of recognizing truth and error and knowing how to distinguish between the two and sticking up for truth when it might bring a lot of cultural pressure. That's why there's, you know, I read the words, there's more than just cool logic here. There's anger. Notice in that hymn, O Worship the King, you can tell it's an old hymn because it has the W word that no modern worship song has. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form. That was a generation that knew about the wrath of God and the importance of it. So in a verse that no one's going to claim for a life verse, at some small group prayer meeting, Paul says, uh, these, these false teachers pushing circumcision instead of the cross, never mind circumcision. Come back again to that long convoluted title I gave this teaching. As long as we love each other and help make the world a better place. Does it matter what the church believes doctrinally about Jesus Christ? And I chose that pretty awkward long title because with increasing frequency, there are evangelicals who proudly say, no, those doctrines are just divisive. We shouldn't be fussing and fighting over them. It presents a fractured, bickering image of the church. It's love that counts. And so I want to take time today to look at this text with an open mind and an open heart. And then I want to try and show why at certain times and over certain truths, not all of them, but certain truths, division in the church is not only ugly, not just ugly, but it's beautiful and it's pleasing in the eyes of our Lord. So you all with me? All right, point number one. The Christian life must not only be initiated well, but sustained well. You were running well. Who prevented you, prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? I like that phrase, you were running well. A race, that's the image Paul has, eh? A long marathon race. It's one of Paul's favorite images. He uses it over and over again. And that's because while there are all sorts of competitive events Paul could have chosen, this race image, it carries something really specific and important. I mean, you win, in the old days, you win a pageant by being the most talented or the most beautiful. 
You win a weightlifting competition by simply lifting more weight than the person next to you. You win a baking contest by having the best pie. But a race is different. I mean, a, a race is a kind of event that isn't won all at once. I mean, actually, a race isn't won during the race at all. The race is only won after. The actual victory takes place after the race, at the finish line. In fact, in fact, a person can be leading a race for 50 or 100 laps around a track and then blow it on the last leg of the race. It's not leading for the majority of the race that counts. It's just finishing the race first that counts. And so Paul looks at these new Christians and he uses that word... Who's preventing? Preventing. They were, they were doing well. Something now was going terribly wrong and they weren't even seeing it. And what was going wrong isn't something we think of as a serious problem in very much of the church today. And that, that's why I said in introducing this teaching, the response to this text really is a good indicator of spiritual health and maturity. Paul's words are very clear. What was preventing these people in their faith was an unwillingness to separate themselves from doctrinal error. And it was hurting them. Paul's pretty sure they would eventually come to their senses. That's in verse 10 of chapter 5. But they hadn't been as willing as Paul wanted them to be judging error as error, saying something was wrong. We need to note that because it rings out out of tune with the music of our entire culture today. Paul says these churchgoers in Galatia, they were sinning, they were sinning by their tolerance, not by their intolerance. And so Paul feels an urgency to correct them. They didn't see their unwillingness to judge error as something devastating to their relationship with Jesus Christ. They thought it could fit in because they were accepting and tolerant and loving of other ideas. But Paul said this was ruining their faith. Take note. I, Paul, I'm telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, look at Can you imagine? Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. That's the issue. That's the issue. Point number two. Understanding the obstetrics of false doctrine. This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Don't think you're being like Jesus here. That's what Paul's saying. And then this. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. These words need to be thought through. False doctrine isn't an elite, intellectual, theological issue. It isn't just for scholars. False doctrine apparently is a life issue. It's a commitment to Jesus issue for everybody. It has to do with loving Jesus, walking in the spirit, getting to heaven. 
And until we see it that way, we will never give it the passion that Paul says it desperately needs. How how do people come to rejecting Jesus and not even realize they're doing it? Seems to me that's a pretty important issue. That's what these verses are all about. There There are two strategies of false thinking that are picked out in these two verses. The first has to do with the persuasiveness of false teaching. And the second has to do with the imperceptibility of false teaching. So I want to look at those two things. A, false teaching is always, it's always persuasive. You can see it in 5.8. This, this persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. And, and Paul He's choosing words pretty carefully here. Uh, By persuasion, Paul means this this doctrinal drift away from truth. It usually doesn't reveal itself by an absolute obvious denial of what we would consider important to our spiritual well-being. At least, not initially. It It doesn't feel like it's anything all that unspiritual, just including something here. Being kind to this idea. Welcoming this line of thought. Other people are. These false teachers in Galatia are just a classic case in point. But they're just an example. This applies to all truth. All false ideas. But these teachers, they weren't coming on the scene calling these new Galatian believers to reject Jesus Christ. That's not what they're doing. In fact, as is the case with most false teaching, they were calling people, you need to supplement this. Their faith in Christ with something that the Jewish people of faith had already been doing for generations. False teaching is always persuasive like that. There's always, there's always something about false teaching that makes sense. It appeals. There's always an element of appeal, though not quite the whole truth. False teaching is rarely overtly obvious, especially at the beginning. Here's how it usually works. Most commonly, it goes like this. Biblical revelation is made to seem not wrong, but a bit, a bit too narrow, a little too confining, a little restrictive. It's a little, it's a little tight for, for today's culture. So intolerance becomes the only sin left. We're encouraged to believe that we will be more loving if only we weren't so dogmatic. We will be more accepting and embracing if only our view of truth wasn't so restricted and limited. I still remember, this is years ago now. These people aren't even around. But I I remember and made note of it. Years ago, our own era banner. Regarding the then proposed, it was just the proposed legislation regarding same-sex marriages in Ontario. And Reverend Heather McCants, then the Anglin minister in Holland Landing, and Sharon. She made these comments, quote, 
the Anglican Church believes the Bible isn't the only way God speaks to us. He gave us brains and expects us to use them. We don't believe he stopped speaking to us 2,000 years ago. There are churches who believe the Bible is the only factor. The Anglican Church isn't one of them. God's word is definitely evolving. And I don't know which way it's going to go. Yes, she said that. Now, I think several things, even today, several things should be said in response by thinking Christians all over York Region. I could have agreed with some of the things that Reverend McCant said. First, I, I too don't believe God stopped speaking to us 2,000 years ago. I believe God speaks to people today. I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to Christians currently inside their own skins as they walk in fellowship with the risen Christ. I actually believe God speaks to all people, atheists, through conscience and circumstances every day all over the world. So I would have agreed that the Bible isn't the only way God speaks to us. I've already mentioned several ways God speaks to people in his creation. And I hope Anglicans aren't the only ones to whom God has given brains. What I want to say is this. None of this even comes close to the issue. Given that God didn't stop speaking to us 2,000 years ago, and given that the Bible isn't the only way God can speak into our lives, here's the issue. How are we going to know when God is speaking? Given that God didn't stop speaking to us 2,000 years ago, and given the Bible isn't the only way he speaks, how are we going to measure? Who's going to be the arbiter? When different people expressing totally opposite views both claim that God is speaking to them. We've seen that in political issues even today. Everybody on all sides drags God in on their side. So how are we going to know? How are we going to know? When everybody claims to be speaking for God, we better have answers to this because it happens all the time on just about every moral issue and political issue on planet Earth. If we're going to talk about having brains, surely this is the issue to use them on. Because if we think the Bible truly is an evolving revelation, then what about the more current revelations? Are they also evolving? From minister to minister, church to church, denomination to denomination, so on, so on. Who, does anybody have the truth anymore? In other words, if Reverend McCants was right, no one has any right to claim an absolute fixed standard of divine truth for faith and morality if all the revelations are constantly evolving. Well, Pastor Don, we should just measure everything by what's loving and what's tolerant and what's accepting. What's so hard about that? Well, nothing except that that's a pretty dogmatic, absolute pronouncement. Where did you pull that one out of a hat? If everything's evolving and changing, there is a better way. The church for centuries has understood that when we say the Bible is God's 
final revelation, we don't mean that God never speaks in any other way. We mean that God never contradicts anything that he has written in his word. Cultures change. Human laws change. Edicts change. What God has revealed in his word is not evolving. Something evolving has no fixed, permanent condition. The term evolving is surely a poor word to describe God's final revelation. So, the Apostle Paul, he certainly believed and experienced God speaking to him in life situations. Come over to Macedonia, remember? He certainly believed God spoke in all sorts of situations. He knew what it was to be constrained and led by the living voice of the Holy Spirit. But he still knew the importance of a fixed measuring stick of revelation. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Do not go beyond what is written, Paul says. So remember, this is all under that point, the two things about false teaching. It's persuasive. That's what we're looking at. It will dress itself up always as loving, tolerant, helpful to hurting people. It is persuasive that way. The second thing I said about false teaching, this is B, False teaching always begins almost imperceptibly. He, he, he picks this imagery very carefully. 5-9. A little, a little leaven, he says. Leavens the whole batch of dough. So again, notice, notice how this image favors the idea of false teaching being brought alongside to supplement, correct, add to. I mean, that's what you do with leaven. You add it to the dough. But in this image of leaven, there's another important thought. The addition doesn't come in a huge, drastic surge of new thought. It comes like leaven. You just throw in a little bit. A little bit at a time. Almost unnoticeable. It doesn't take much leaven or yeast to make a huge difference in the baking of bread, as anyone who bakes bread knows. And it's right at this point that we find the reason most churches don't do very much about false doctrine until it's too late. Most Christians, most churches wait until they see the damage of false teaching before they correct false teaching. That's too late. Usually especially in our culture, it's the, it's the uncomfortable rebuke that the church has to exercise. Uncomfortable because we're all conditioned to live our lives in the atmosphere of the moral relativism of our culture. We, we've actually been brainwashed to believe it's Arrogant to claim certainty on any revealed truth from God. And that, that tone of the day, it's designed. It's designed by the spirit of the age to pave the way for false doctrine by, by stacking public opposition to those who want to correct it. You look silly correcting false teaching. You look narrow-minded correcting false teaching. 
That's why it always takes incredible courage to deal with false teaching, false thinking, false ideas. The only, the one dealing with it is always the one to look small-minded and picky and, yes, divisive. Paul says as much right in this passage. His insistent declaration of the cross earned him nothing but enemies. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the gospel has been abolished. So, so Paul was experiencing persecution because he refused to join things that couldn't be joined. He refused to accept ideas that couldn't be accepted. In this case, it was the doctrine of the necessity of circumcision in the Old Covenant. But there were other issues on other occasions. There are issues to this day. The point is that Paul refused to synthesize the gospel with anything else. C. False teaching spreads until it is stopped. Again, that's the way leaven works. There's, there is not a verse in the New Testament that encourages the church to pray against false teaching. You don't pray it away. False teaching must be rebuked. Must be exposed. That's the, that's the nature of leaven. There's nothing in it that stops automatically. The clear example from the scriptures will lead us to two conclusions. First, genuine spirit-filled Christians can become involved in false teaching. And second, even in these cases, false teaching must be lovingly but firmly confronted. Look at Peter in the account we're studying from Galatians. Peter bought into the Jewish legalists who came from Jerusalem. And Paul confront, imagine, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, two founders after the ascended Christ of the, the entire church. And Paul will right in front of everybody confront Peter and saying, you're not walking in the truth. How else do you do it? How else do you do it? Now, I've discovered, and I'm, I'm wrapping up. I've made the sad discovery in a lot of conversations that generally millennials and Gen Xers, they have a hard time with Paul. Not crazy about Paul. They tend to forget that when you read Paul, you're not just reading Paul, you're reading the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. When you read Paul, you're reading God. And you better come to terms with that. If you don't like the things that Paul says, you, you, you need to take your argument higher up. But let's leave Paul just for a minute as we wrap up. Let's look at Jesus. Because I think, I think we're all still a little less comfortable writing Jesus off as a kind of narrow-minded male chauvinist. Jesus talked to his followers about proclaiming absolute truth in a culture that no longer liked it. He did. 
that very specific subject. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, Beelzebub, prince, depending on the translation, prince of darkness or prince of demons, that's what they're calling Jesus. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more are the members of his household? Hear these words from the Savior who died for your sins. Expect to be maligned and mocked for agreeing with Jesus. If they call me the prince of demons, and I'm your leader, and you're following me, what do you think they're going to call you? That's, that's what that verse is saying. Read it. Don't assume, don't assume because you've been called a name. Or when people say that they found what you believe to be offensive, don't automatically assume that you said something wrong. Did you get it? Jesus is saying, don't assume because someone else is offended by what you believe. Don't assume you made a mistake. We're so buried in that kind of thinking. They spat on Jesus. They called him names. They said he was the prince of demons. Are we going to assume we will be above our Savior? Is that what we're thinking? If you truly want to be like Jesus... Expect to be treated like Jesus. You can't just worship Jesus and say, isn't it neat that he died for my sins? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I'll tell you what it means. According to Jesus, it means you, you, you believe what I believe. You say what I say. Don't just admire me. All sorts of Christians want to be like Jesus but they don't want to be treated like Jesus. And our Lord says, I'm sorry, that's not on the table. That's not on the table. If you're not being treated like Jesus, it's probably because you're happy just to think about loving Jesus and worshiping Jesus without saying what Jesus said and believing what Jesus proclaimed. Well, I'm not sure that's necessary, Pastor Don. There's another verse I didn't, I just put it in this morning. I don't have a slide for it. But it continues right after Matthew 10, 24, 25. Here's what Jesus says in 26, 27, 28. Listen carefully, okay? Therefore, don't be afraid of them. This is Jesus, his disciples. Them is the culture around them. Don't be afraid of them. Since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered... Nothing hidden that won't be made known. How important is it do we have to proclaim what Jesus proclaimed? 27, get these words right into your bloodstream. Jesus speaks. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, 
proclaim from the housetops. And then these words, which we usually quote all by themselves. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So when Jesus says, don't be afraid, the reason he's telling them not to be afraid is he's calling them to proclaim from the housetops everything Jesus said. And that's a scary business, what Jesus said about marriage, what Jesus said about sexuality, what Jesus said about being the only way to heaven. If you think you can proclaim those things, Jesus says you have to. If you're going to proclaim those things from the housetops, they're not going to love you for it. Then he says, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's worse things than being persecuted by people for being like Jesus. You can be lost. And that's what will happen if the gospel gets mixed in with false teaching. So remember, church, tough message. It's, if you weren't preaching right through Galatians, you wouldn't touch it. And I tried to show at the conclusion that Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing. Paul, he talks about the offense of the gospel. I'm being persecuted for the offense of the gospel. Jesus says, they, treat, they treated me like I was the prince of demons. They're going to treat you the same way. Don't be afraid. Declare it from the rooftops. They're saying exactly the same thing. Scriptural truth always does more than just free and save. It does both of those things. Praise God. But it also always tests my loyalty. Jesus isn't just the life and the way. He's always and forever the voice of God's absolute, unchanging truth. The way, the truth, and the life. And everyone said... Your word, your, regardless of the weakness of the speaker, your powerful word, let, let, it, let it brick up our hearts against false teaching. Let it fortify every muscle in our being against the persecution of the culture. We don't want to just glibly sing about the lordship of Jesus. It's going to start to, the lordship of Jesus is going to start to cost a whole bunch. And you're able to keep your own unto the very end. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So bless this truth to our hearts. Keep us on track. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.